Obadiah's mention of Shalom. No, it's been said that grace, like water, always flows to the lowest places. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest places. Here in this part of David's life, uh, David is at an all-time low. That's what we're going to see here in chapter 29. We, we pick up the story. David is at a low point in his life in more ways than one. Spiritually, this is really a low point. Materially, in this chapter, David is going to lose literally everything. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you've been there. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You know what that looks like. You know what it feels like when things fall apart and you lose everything. But in this story, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how the grace of God meets David at this lowest place in his life, at this lowest point, and God does something glorious in his life. And I believe that's something that God wants to do in your life and in my life as well. So let's get into the story here. This is 1 Samuel chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Now from the time that David was a young boy, that's what we've seen going through 1 Samuel, from the time David was a young boy, he developed this incredible relationship with God. As a boy, he was given the humble task, the bad job, you could say, of tending after his family's sheep. That was really the job that nobody wanted to do, and the only reason that David ended up in that job is because he was the youngest son, and he had no seniority, right? He had nobody to uh, pass that job off on. You know, tending after the sheep was an extremely boring job, it was an extremely lonely job, and oftentimes it could be an extremely dangerous job. But David, as he tended the sheep, as he did that job that nobody else wanted to do, he developed an incredible relationship with God. Let me ask you, do you hate your job? Do you have, like, the world's worst job? Well, let me tell you what, so did David. And he used that terrible job to be fuel for this epic relationship with God that just carries on through the centuries as wow, you know? He realized that he was not really alone. As a young boy, he developed out as a shepherd this incredible relationship with God. He would talk to God, he would worship God, and when David was in danger, he would cry out to the Lord for help. David developed this relationship with God, he developed this heart for God that was so great that God would later look at him say, you know what? That is the kind of person who I want to lead my people and be king over my people of Israel. I want that kind of person, a man with that kind of heart for me, a heart after my own heart, a, a person like David, that shepherd boy. You know, to have a heart for God, what it means is that your will and your desires are aligned with the will and the desires of God. You want to live for Him. You want to honor Him. You want Him to be Lord of your life. In other words, you don't just live with the mentality of what do I want in life, but you ask the question, what does God want with my life? What does God want me to do for him with my life? That is how David lived for many years. David walked closely with God. He had a strong relationship of faith and trust in God. There were few people like David who were willing to step out in faith and boldly trust God. There were few people who were willing to do it like he David was the guy who, when the Philistines were about to crush the Israelites, and they were mocking the name of God, David was the only one who said, you know what, I don't care 
how many of them there are. I don't care uh, who these guys are. I don't care if the odds are stacked against us. If God is with us, if God is for us, then why don't we step out in faith and see what God might do? Why don't we trust God and make a step of faith? And David, that young man, so full of faith, so full of trust in God, he stood up and he stepped out and he faced that giant named Goliath and he faced the whole army of the Philistines who had come against the people of God to destroy them. And he went out there the only way that he knew how, with the equipment of a shepherd, with a sling and a few smooth stones. The same things that God had used in his life previously to save him before wild animals. David defeated Goliath that day, and in the years following, David became a general of the army of Israel. He would lead men to go and fight against the Philistines, these people who were singularly focused on destroying the nation of Israel and taking away the land that God had given them as a promise. You see, because from this nation and in this land, one day would come the Savior of the world. You see, the whole Bible, if it really is about Jesus, even this story is very much about Jesus, ultimately. From this land, from this nation, would one day come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who was coming from God to save the world from the curse of sin and death. We know him as Jesus Christ. And so you got to understand that for the people of Israel, the ones who knew the plan and purpose of God for the ages of the nations, attacks on Israel, on by the Philistines, they were more than just, hey, this is our land, please leave. It was actually, uh, they considered this a threat and an attack upon the redemptive plan of God for the world. You see, for these people of God, they understood these attacks on the Philistines not only to be physical in nature, but to also have a spiritual side. And so for them to fight for Israel, to defend their nation, was to fight for the very plan and the very will of God, which he had promised of old to their fathers that through this nation and in this land, God is going to bring redemption to the world, a savior for all nations. And so understand, that's just a little bit of background, so you will understand that when we read here in chapter 29, verses 1 and 2, that the Philistines are arraying for battle, how shocking it is when we read it in verse 2, that who's there along with them? David. David. And you can't help but look at this and scratch your head and wonder, what is he doing there? How did this happen? Here's David, the man after God's own heart, this man of incredible faith and trust in God, the man who's been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. What is he doing here, preparing to lead his men into battle on the side of the Philistines against the people of God? This flies completely in the face of everything that David has stood for, everything that David has believed in. You see, here in this first section, what we see is David in a state of compromise. Check out what happens in verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? Since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him, even to this day. Even the Philistines look at David and his men and they say, What are these guys doing here? These guys don't belong here. You know, David should command the Philistines. This is really an indictment on, on where David's at. He looks at the David should command the Philistines, tells the other lords of the Philistines, he said, Hey guys, David's a brother, you know? 
He's been with us for over a year now. He's one of us now. He's just like us. He's not like all those other Hebrews out there. You know? He's a bro. What an incredible indictment this is in itself of where David is at right now in the state of compromise. Let me put it this way. David is in a place right now where years earlier he would have never thought he would ever be. Instead, David is in a place right now where years earlier he would have never thought he would ever be. If you would have talked to David five, ten years before this, imagine with me, if you will, David is coming off the battlefield from fighting Goliath, right? He just, you know, they just had this great victory. And you go and interview him and you say, Jesus, guess what? Ten years from now, you are going to be fighting with the Philistines against the people of God. He would have said what? He would have been like, no way. No way. That's, that's impossible. You are crazy, right? I would never do that. Maybe other people. Maybe Saul. That sounds like something Saul would do, but not me. I would never do that. But now here it is. And I have to say that I think this really speaks to all of us. No matter where you're at this morning, I think it has something to say to all of us. Maybe you've come here today and you can relate to this. Because that's where you are right now. Right now, you are in a place where a couple of years ago, you would have never thought you would have ever Maybe nobody knows it except for you. Maybe it's something in your marriage. I don't know. But you're going places and you're doing things that just a few years ago, you would have never thought you would ever do. The story has something to speak to you. But maybe you're here today, and that's not the case. Maybe you're here today and you're doing great. You're just doing awesome, right? And you're walking in faith and trust in God and devotion to God, and things are good. If that's you, I'm glad. I'm happy for you. But let me tell you this. Do you know that it takes careful diligence to remain in that place for a long time? It takes careful diligence if you're going to remain in that place for the long term. Because if this could happen to David, the man after God's own heart, and I think it could happen to any of us. It could happen to you. That in five, ten years from now, you could find yourself in a place that right now you never think you could be. That place where you look at and you say, oh man, you know, not me. Other people, maybe. But I would never do that. I would never go there. Let me tell you this. If you don't give careful diligence to your relationship with God, you can easily find yourself there. I've seen it happen before. How did David get to this point? That's really the question. I mean, he didn't just wake up one day and be like, you know, enough trusting God, and I'm going to switch over to the Philistines and see what's going on over there. No, not at all. This was a process with many steps along the way. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how David, when he made this first compromise, he was in a place where he was tired. He was discouraged. And in a weak moment, he gave in to depression and fear. He gave it a compromise. And why? Because it just seemed easier. It just seemed easier to give into that compromise. And that compromise led to other compromises. And then one day, here David is in this place where he never thought he would ever be. I have to wonder, you know, what could have prevented this from happening? I think about my life, I think about your life, what can we do to prevent this from happening? Well, I think there's several things. I want to point out two, which I think are, are important, that are key. 
to uh, preventing this kind of thing from happening in real life. Number one, fellowship. Okay, let me say this. David, right, we know that he had these 600 men who were his companions. But, you know, his relationship with them, he was the commander, he was the boss. In other words, David was surrounded by people, but just because you're surrounded by people, that doesn't mean that you have actual fellowship, right? I mean, uh, the kinds of relationships with people where you build each other up spiritually, like iron sharpening iron. I can't help but wonder how this might have turned out differently if David had someone in his life who, when he was in this place of feeling overwhelmed by fear, struggling with temptation, who could have spoken to him and brought him back to reality and said, David, man, snap out of it. David, what are you thinking? Come on, man, you need to remember the word of God to you. You need to remember what God has spoken to you. You need to trust him. He has never left you hanging before David. He has been faithful to you. Going to the Philistines, bad idea. Don't do it. What if he had somebody in his life to do that? Later on, David will have those kind of people in his life who love the Lord and who speak truth in his life. Call him out when he's not doing well, and that will be a good thing. I believe that we all need those kind of relationships with people who love God and who are pursuing God and who encourage us and build us up spiritually. People we can turn to when we're struggling who will point us to the Lord. But I have to ask you this. How about you? Do you have those kinds of relationships? Here at White Foods, you know, one of the things that we really emphasize is the importance of community. We believe that community is an essential part of Christian life. It is essential in Christian life for you to be in authentic community and real fellowship with other people who are also pursuing God so that you can spur each other on, so that you can encourage each other. Now, personally, I would love to see everyone in our church involved in one of our communities. We do those. Why? Because we want to facilitate these kinds of relationships. Real fellowship. I believe that's a game changer. The other thing that I would mention here that I see in David's life is devotional life. That's another important part. You will notice uh, as we go through David's life, you probably have noticed over the last several weeks, that when David's doing well, he writes a lot of songs, right? These were poems, these were songs, these were prayers that David would write from his heart to God. But what you also notice throughout 1 Samuel is that when David is not in a good place, when he's backsliding, if you will, there are no psalms. There is only silence. He's no longer writing. He's no longer singing. He's no longer praying. He's no longer writing psalms. And so there are plenty of times, you know, when David is going through difficult circumstances, but yet he writes psalms. And interestingly, in those psalms, you see that David, he pours out even just the most, the, the bitterest part of his heart. You know, sometimes you're like, wow, that was harsh. Like what he says, right? He just pours out the bitterness of his soul before God. His heart, though, as he's speaking to God, his heart is changed in those psalms. He would get perspective on that situation. He would be stirred up to remember in his spirit who God is, and he would be inspired to trust the Lord. But here's my point. Not surprisingly, the lowest points of David's life coincided with the times in which his devotional life stopped. You notice that? The lowest points in David's life coincide with the times in which his devotional life stopped. Devotional life is important because as you read the word, as you pray, 
you're reminded of who God is and what God has done. So I'd say this devotional life and fellowship, these things could have been game changers in David's life. And I believe they will be game changers in your life and in my life. You cannot neglect the spiritual disciplines. Let's read on. So let's read on to verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, that's Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said to Achish, Send the man back that he may return to his place which you have assigned him. He will not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. The Philistines, they remember David. How could they forget, right? This guy, a few years ago, he was their worst nightmare. And they remind Achish, don't you know who this guy is? Don't you remember they used to sing songs about him in Israel? You know about when he was fighting valiantly the battles of the Lord? When David had faith and trust and devotion to God? But man, doesn't that seem like a different lifetime now, right? Seeing David where he's at and where he used to be. It seems like a distant memory of a different life. Verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord does not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord the King? Just in case we might have thought that David doesn't really want to go fight against the Israelites, and he's just kind of playing along because he feels like he doesn't have a choice. Well, that's not really the case anymore. I mean, look at this. He's practically begging Achish. Come on, man, what did I do to you? Let me go fight with you guys, you know? He's protesting. He's practically begging to let Achish, for Achish to let him go and fight against the Israelites. But notice this phrase. I think it's very telling. What Achish says, he says, Sorry, David, it's not going to work out. And why? And verse 7 he says, It would really displease the Lord's Philistines. Okay, think about this. Pull back the clock with me, if you will. There's David. He's getting ready to fight Goliath. He's gathering his smooth stones. He's getting his sling ready. And somebody walks up to him and says, You know, David, I think you should really not do this because, you know, if you go out there and hurt Goliath, I mean, you know, that will really displease the Lord's Philistines. What would David have said? Displease the Lord's Philistines? That's like my number one goal in life, right? I want to displease the Lord's Philistines. I stay up late thinking of new ways to displease the Lord's Philistines. If I ever stop displeasing the Lord's Philistines, please let me know. But now here is David, and what is he concerned with? He's concerned with something he shouldn't be concerned with. He's concerned about pleasing these people who he should not be concerned about pleasing. And that should be a red flag to him. Let me tell you, it should be a red flag to you in your life. I mean, think about this. Who are the people in your life who you are really concerned with pleasing? Who are those people who you really care what they think? You don't want to displease them. Just make sure they're the right people, okay? Really, make sure they're the right people. There are certain people who you 
you should be trying to please, like your spouse, like your kids, but there are other people who you don't need to be trying to please in Christ. Make sure you don't fall into the trap that David fell into, trying to please the lords of the Philistines at the expense of pleasing God. Let's carry on from verse 9. Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, You shall not go with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have left. So David set out with his men early in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. After we see David in a state of compromise, the next thing we see is we see David losing everything. When David went to the Philistines, you can imagine that he probably thought they would be pretty excited to have him around. I mean, who would it? Here he is, this great Israeli commander. Now, here he is. You know, he probably thought they're going to welcome me with open arms. They're probably going to make me a commander, a general. Who knows? Maybe they'll even make me president, right? But instead, what happens? David got rejected. And rejection is always painful, even when it comes from the Philistines. And so, here David and his men, they're rejected by the Philistines. And they turn around and they make a long walk back to Ziklag. This is their Philistine city where they've been living. You'll read in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. These 600 men, there they are, fresh off of rejection by the Philistines, and they arrive home after three days of walking through the desert, only to find that their city has been raided and everything is gone. Everything. You know, when we lived in Hungary, I remember one night, um, my wife, and we had two kids at that point, my wife and two kids, we came home from being out at dinner with friends, and we walked in the door, and something was different. The place was a mess, you know, and there was things all over the floor. And at first it didn't register what was going on, but it didn't take long before we realized that what had happened was someone had broken into our house. And they had gone through all of our drawers, you know, if maybe had this happen to you, they'd go through all your drawers and just dump everything on the floor because they're looking for valuables that might have hidden somewhere. And if that's ever happened to you, uh, there are a few thoughts that go through your mind right away. First thought is, is anybody still in my house? Because what if I came home and they were still here and now they're hiding? And so you go through your house and you know you're, you're scared. Like you're looking in every place where somebody can hide to make sure that nobody's still there. The next thought that goes through your mind is, um, you know, you go to all the places where you have things that were valuable and you see if they can be still there. You know, I can imagine David and his men those same similar feelings, you know, seeing the smoke on the horizon and realizing, oh no, that's our town. And as they get closer, you know, get to the city and they frantically search in every nook and cranny, in every house, in every room, and looking, hoping that their wives and kids are somehow hidden out and, and escape this raid, but soon reality set in and they realize that now everything is gone. Put yourself in, your in their shoes. What would you do? go away for a few days, you come back, everything's gone. Your house is burned down, your family's kidnapped, everything you have. 
so on. But you probably know what they did, verse 4. David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 600 hardened warriors, grown men, they weep out loud and cry until they can't cry Verse 5, we read, David's two wives had also been taken captive, uh, Ahinoam and Je of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmel. See, David lost his wives too, this touched his life too. See, everything that David had to lean on and depend on, every support that he had in his life, it was taken away from him. You know, he said, I thought the Philistines were my friends, and now they've rejected me. Well, at least I've got my family, right? No, David, your family's gone too. Well, at least I've got my possessions. At least I've got financial security, right? No, that's gone too. Everything you trusted in, everything you believed on, everything you had hope in and security in, it's gone. Taken away in a moment. But there's still one thing David's got left, isn't there? He's still got these 600 men, this band of brothers who are going to be with him through thick and thin, who followed him even to the territory of the Philistines. They fought next to each other, these 600 men. I mean, how good is that to have friends around you in a time like this? People to rally behind you and support you and encourage you. At least he's got them, right? Well, look at verse 6. David was greatly distressed for the people, that's the 600 men, spoke of stoning him because all of them were bitter of soul, for each, each for his sons and daughters. The 600 men turned on David too. Now he really has nothing left. I mean, everything is gone. His whole life is shattered. He's hit rock bottom. Where do you turn in a time like this when David's only got one place left to turn? The only thing he's got left at all is God. God, that God who will never leave him or forsake him, the God who loves him with an everlasting love, God who is faithful even when David is unfaithful, the God who is able to work all things for good to those who love him. David now finds himself in this place where the only thing he's got left, literally, is God. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in that place yourself. Nobody wants to be in that place, right? But ultimately, it's not a bad place. David has allowed, or God has allowed David to lose everything but for a purpose. So that David has nothing else to look to, nothing else to lean on, nothing else to turn to except for him. Check out what happens in the next section, starting at the end of verse 6. So David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of the Hemelite, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. This was something they would use to discern the will of God. And David inquired of the Lord. Stop there. It has been said that when we find a redemptive perspective on our suffering, it ceases to be suffering. I'll say that again. When we find a redemptive perspective on our suffering, it ceases to be suffering. And for the first time in years, here we see David strengthening himself in the Lord. For the first time in years, David is seeking God. He's praying again. He's asking, God, what would you have me do? He's seeking God's will for his life. This is going to be a major turning point in David's life. He's going to leave the Philistines now. He's going to go back to Israel. He's going to start praying again. He's going to start writing psalms again. 
See, the grace of God met David at this lowest point in his life and gave him exactly what he needed. It was the grace of God that he was rejected by the Philistines. Do you know that? It was the grace of God that he was rejected by the Philistines. Why? Because they kept him from doing something dumb that he would have regretted later. He thought in the moment, I really want to do this. But in retrospect, he wouldn't have wanted to do that. He would have been giving up his future by doing that. It was the grace of God that he was rejected. It was the grace of God that he was rejected for another reason. Because David had to return home early. He would have been gone for months had he gone that way. But now he returns home early. And he returns home while this trail from the Amalekites is still fresh. He's going to be able to go after them and retrieve his wife and his children and the things that have been stolen from him. It was the grace of God that gave his friends and turned against him. Why? Because they put him in this place where he had no one else to turn to but God. And as he did that, his eyes were open. He realized, what am I doing here? Why am I, what am I doing trying to please the lords of the Philistines? This isn't right. I shouldn't be here. God forgive me. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest place. I want you to see this. At this point in David's life, what form did God's grace take? God's grace took the form of rejection and loss. That was the grace of God. Rejection and loss in David's life. It was those things which God providentially used in David's life to open his eyes and to change his heart. Yes, David lost things, but what he gained as a result was so much greater, so much more substantial. You know this, God loves you. He loves you so much. And because he loves you, he will sometimes allow things to be taken out of your life if that's what it takes to get your attention, to open your eyes, to turn your heart back to him. You know, the message of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he was willing to lose everything in order to take hold of you. He was willing to lose everything to take hold of you. And if you could really understand and fully grasp how much he loves you and what a treasure it is to know him and have a relationship with him, let me tell you this, you would be willing to do anything. You would be willing to give up anything. You would be willing to go anywhere and do anything in order to take hold of him. You know, God was teaching David an important lesson, which all of us need to learn. That if you've got nothing else but God, then you've got more than enough. But if you have everything this world has to offer, but you don't have God, then you are incredibly important. Jesus told two parables. Now I'm going to end with this. Jesus told two parables in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Here are the two parables. The first parable says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 45, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, at first glance, these parables appear to be saying basically the same thing. I mean, in both parables, in both parables, uh, right, somebody finds something very precious and they give up everything they have in order to obtain it. But when you look a little closer, what you realize is that there's an important difference between these two parables, and that's this. In the first parable, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure which, some, which is found by a person. 
But in the second parable, the kingdom of heaven is a person who finds a treasure. You see the difference? The first one, it's a treasure found by a person. The other one, it's a person who finds a treasure. Okay? Jesus posed a question which was just as relevant today, uh, which was just as relevant 2,000 years ago as it is to this very day. Jesus asked, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? What that means is that you could be the most successful person in the world, but it all means nothing if in the end you lose your soul. Because each and every one of us, we have a debt before God, a debt which we do not have the means to pay. But the gospel message is this. It's the message that the greatest treasure in the world is available to you. It's a treasure which is worth more than anything this world has to offer. It's that God himself paid your debt in Christ on the cross. And not only that, but he offers you a relationship with him, the God of the universe, and through him, eternal life. The point of this parable, the first parable, is that that, that is so precious, so amazingly wonderful, that if you could only understand, if you could only see it, that you would be willing to do anything, whatever it takes to take hold of it. And yet so many people are worried about what is it going to cost me if I really decide to follow Jesus? What will it cost me? They want to know if I hand my life over to God. They're worried about what they might lose or what they might have to give up if they truly decide to follow Jesus. But think about this parable. This man who stumbles upon this great treasure hidden in the field, does he have to give anything up in order to take hold of it? Yes, he does. Uh, he had to sell all of his possessions. Maybe he owned fields, other fields. Maybe he owned a house. Maybe he had to sell his flat screen TV and his sports car. I don't know. But he did have to get rid of everything he had. And it says that he sold everything. Why? In order to get something better. That's it. It's in order to get something better. And that's the point. Is it going to cost you something in order to take hold of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? Let me tell you this. Yes, it very well might. Yes, maybe it will. It might even cost you everything. But the point is this. If it did cost you everything, if you did have to give up everything in order to take hold of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, would it be worth it? Absolutely. Without a question. Without a doubt. It would be more than worth it. Was it worth it for David to lose everything in order to gain this treasure? Absolutely, without a doubt, more than that. If you and I could only see what a great treasure it is to know God, to take hold of eternal life, we would understand there is no cost too high. You know, the missionary Jim Elliot, he famously said, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The man in this parable, after he sold everything to buy that field and get the treasure, do you think he was thinking afterwards, man, I really miss all my stuff. You know, like, I really miss all that stuff I sold to buy this field. I don't think so. And you know what I think he was thinking? He was thinking, I just hit the jackpot. Like, I am the luckiest person. What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus continued in the next verse. He said, and what would a man give exchange for his soul? Let me ask you this, and I believe this is the question that Jesus is asking with those questions. He's saying this, 
Is there anything in your life which is a hindrance to you having a relationship with God, but you're so afraid of letting it go that you're holding on to it at the expense of not taking hold of the treasure of the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus is asking. And I would encourage you to ask yourself that question honestly, because the point that Jesus is making is this. If there's anything you're holding on to which is hindrance between you and God, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You might be friends with the Philistines. He says it's not worth it. All the stuff you had, if it's a hindrance, it's not worth it. It's not worth holding on to something that will stand as a barrier between you and God, something that will potentially put you at risk of not being in a right relationship with God. But what about the other parable? Right? In the first parable, God, uh, the kingdom of God is compared to treasure that you must take hold of at any cost. But in the second parable, kingdom of God is compared to a merchant out searching, searching for pearls. He finds one of great value. He gives everything he has, and he might take hold of it. You know the merchant in that parable is? It's God. You know what that means? That means that the pearl of great value, you know what that is? That's you. In this parable, God is the one who sees you, and he considers you to be so precious that he's willing to give up everything in order to take hold of you. He considers you such a treasure gave up everything in order to make you his own. And this is really the message of the gospel, that God loved you so much that he left the glory of heaven to come to this dusty planet full of imperfection and pain, so that he could purchase your life by giving his life for you. That's redemption. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God showed his great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever wonder, if you ever ponder, does God really love me? Does God really care about me? God's word says, look to the cross. Look to the cross. That's the essence of what the cross says. It says that God loves you. He loved you so much that he gave everything in order to gain you, in order that you might be his own. So what do these parables do? They illustrate for us the two sides of the gospel. That God loves you so much that he gave everything in order to take hold of you. And therefore, if you could only see how great the treasure he is, oh, what a great treasure he is, then you would be willing to give up everything to take hold of him. Paul the Apostle, he said in his life, he said, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, but alas, I consider all things that I lost. All, this, all that stuff I gave up, I consider rubbish compared to him. What you see here in the story of 1 Samuel 29 and 30 is that the you see, the love of God which pursued David, even when David wasn't pursuing God. And as we go on in this story next week, we're going to see how God is going to restore to David almost everything that he lost. But here in this section, here's the focus. We see that the grace of God met David at his lowest point and gave him exactly what he needed. In his case, exactly what he needed was to have no other place to turn but to God. It was to have things removed from his life which were a hindrance rather than a help. And the good news is that God knows exactly where you are at and what you need. And just as he loved David and cared for David, he loves you and cares for you as well. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this great message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you would consider us and you would come to us, Lord, in order to purchase us, in order to redeem our lives. Lord, you would lose everything. But I pray that you would work that kind of spirit, that kind of heart in us too. That we would say, whatever the cost, Lord, if only I 
Outside these walls, just as we want to be in Jesus' name. 